Welcome to Cardio Radio, a podcast of the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative, also known as Cardio. This is Dr. Michael Constant from the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and I serve as the principal investigator for Cardio, a statewide network of Ohio's seven medical schools. Cardio is funded by the Ohio Department of Medicaid and shares best practices to improve cardiovascular health, diabetes outcomes, and to eliminate health disparities in Ohio's Medicaid population. The opinions and recommendations in this podcast are those of the presenters and not those of Cardio and its sponsors, and are not intended to be a substitute for medical advice. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Mintz. My pronouns are she and her. I'm an internal medicine and pediatrics physician at Metro Health Medical Center and an assistant professor of medicine at the Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. My research focuses on health disparities in lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and other expansive communities. I am here today as a member of Cardio Team Best Practices. I'm joined by two guests, and today we'll discuss the impact of gender-affirming hormonal therapy on glycemic control and cardiometabolic health. We'll also discuss the impact of the social determinants of health on transgender populations and on glycemic control, and we'll give some practical strategies for managing gender-affirming hormonal therapy and diabetes in trans and gender-diverse, aka TGD, patients. I'd like my first guest to introduce himself. Please go ahead, Dr. Hardy. Uh, thank you, Dr. Mintz. Uh, I'm Roger Hardy, and my pronouns are he and him. I am a clinical endocrinologist and assistant professor of clinical medicine at The Ohio State University. My clinical and teaching expertise focuses on evaluation and treatment of general endocrine disorders, diabetes, and gender dysphoria. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Telshak, can you introduce yourself, too? Absolutely, Dr. Mintz. I am Jude Telshak. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, and they, them. I'm a social worker. Specifically, I work with a population, usually in some form of rehabilitation, who is seeking employment. And I also just earned my master's of social work this past year. I'm a Cleveland native, and I'm also a transgender man. And I'm happy to be here today. Thank you both so much for being here, and congratulations, Jude. Thanks. It was a hard-fought battle for sure. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. So, Jude, since we are talking about trans and gender diverse populations, what's a transgender person? Uh, yeah, Dr. Mintz, I think definitions are important here just to get a sense of who we're talking about. So when we talk about cisgender people, let's start there. Cisgender people are folks who are born into a certain uh, gender, a certain sex, uh, such as male or female or intersex. And um, those are the folks that identify with the sex that they were given at birth. So uh, men who identify as men and women who identify as women who were born into that identity. When we talk about trans people or transgender people, we're really talking about folks who were born into uh, a gender that does not match the gender that they feel inside. So for instance, I was born biologically as female and it never sat with me correctly. It was never my identity. And so I identify as a man. And if we're getting to the semantics of it, I'm a transgender man. Thank you. And I think uh, gender diverse may be uh, an unfamiliar term for some people. So gender diverse populations are those people it was a broad term invented to describe all of the people whose genders don't align with their sex assigned at birth. Uh, because I know that one of the things that people talk to me about all the time is like, how do I know the names of all the terms? They're always changing. And it's like, well, you just ask somebody and that usually works out okay. Um, but gender diverse is a good broad descriptor. 
So the first thing I'd like to do is invite Mr. Teleshack to share their story about their experiences as a person with diabetes and how beginning gender-affirming therapy affected the management of his blood sugar. So, Mr. Teleshack, tell me, what were your experiences like in managing diabetes before starting your gender-affirming therapy? Well, I'll be honest, it was not high on my priority list. I have a partner who, when we first met, you know, often would say, you know, I love everything about you, but it seems like you don't really have a lot of thoughts about the future. And I feel like that's a really great encapsulation of how I approached my health before I started my gender affirming treatment. And so I didn't do much about it. I didn't do much about being diabetic. I have another chronic condition that I've been dealing with since I was 18. And so it felt very overwhelming to try to take on yet another long-term illness and long-term, you know, situation. And so I uh, I just really avoided it. I really was like an ostrich with my head in the sand and I didn't do very much about it at all. So thank you for sharing that. I know that lots of primary care providers that are listening in can probably think of their own patients that have come to them in a similar position. Can you tell me about how starting testosterone changed your diabetes management? Absolutely. So one of the things you always hear when you are a diabetic, especially a type 2 diabetic, and when you are regular seeing physicians, you know, oftentimes the conversation centers around weight. And it doesn't often expand to other aspects of somebody's life that also affect their physical, emotional, and mental health. So once I started on testosterone therapy, it really did make a huge difference in how I viewed my life and how I viewed my health. It really felt like an important thing to focus on. It felt like I was affirmed in myself for the first time in my entire life. And as a result, it made me actually, you know, want to have a future and plan for a future where I was living a healthy existence um, as a man, as opposed to, you know, trying to live a healthy existence in a gender that didn't feel affirming to me. You know, this whole podcast is about, let's try to help people figure out what the order of operations is in terms of gender affirming therapy. And I think you're saying to us really clearly, you know, the gender affirming therapy in many ways was step one of you really managing your diabetes. I really appreciate that. Absolutely. And that is entirely true for me. Obviously, I can't speak to everybody, but for me, starting hormone therapy, starting gender affirming therapy was literally life changing in so many ways. Thank you for that. It's a really important thing to start with. So just in general, I wanted to say that there's a couple of different ways that people can access gender affirming hormonal therapy. You know, for adults, there's two kind of larger ways. The way that I practice at Metro Health is we use the informed consent model, which is guidelines placed by the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. And it allows for an informed consent conversation for patients older than the age of 18. So what that conversation is, is a full conversation about the risks and benefits of therapy, the expected outcomes of therapy, and ensuring that the patient understands these concerns. Another critical component here is that it requires that mental health conditions be reasonably well controlled. Uh, the Endocrine Society model also calls for this and requires patients to have basically pre-clearance from a behavioral health professional before starting gender-affirming hormonal therapy. And so we use that model in children, as do most providers of gender-affirming hormonal therapy and gender affirmation for children, where not only the child understands the risks and benefits of therapy, but also they work with behavioral health folks and their custodial parents to really understand 
what's going on here, what is the interest in gender affirmation, what are the expectations about it, and also are there any other co-occurring conditions that could be confusing the experience of gender dysphoria for a child? You know, once people are 18, we have the sense that they can make their own decisions. And in children, it is an extremely slow and deliberate process. So I just want to emphasize because there are lots of political activities going on right now that suggest that children are walking to people's offices and getting gender affirming hormonal therapy on visit one. And it just never happens. It needs to be a careful and deliberate process with the patient and their parents and mental health providers. And we have the same deliberateness in the adult side. It's just you know, fewer people are involved. So since we've heard about the practical impact of testosterone on management of diabetes from Jude, I'd like to ask Dr. Hardy about the effects of hormones and gender-affirming therapy on blood sugar, diabetes, and cardiac outcomes. Yeah, thanks. So we know from cellular models that um, there is an increase in insulin resistance with exposure to estrogen and testosterone therapy. Additionally, um, biopsy and body composition studies suggest that android and gynoid fat seem to change, but visceral fat does not really change. And interestingly enough, carrying a high amount of visceral fat is known to be associated with insulin resistance. And so maybe there is some insight from those cell models as translates to actual trans and gender diverse people. So what do we know about these conditions and these risks in not just cell models, but human beings? Yeah, good question. So in the transgender population, there are some risk factors, some that are modifiable and some that are non-modifiable that can play a role on glycemic control, diabetes, and cardiac outcomes. Trans men enter care with heavier bodies than cisgender people. They tend to have a higher body mass index or BMI at their baseline. And they also tend to have higher levels of polycystic ovarian syndrome compared to cisgender controls. And both of those are connected with insulin resistance and are independent risk factors for insulin resistance. Trans men, however, haven't consistently shown diabetes prevalence to be any higher than matched controls. Trans women have been described to have increased weight after starting gender-affirming hormonal therapy. This is expected to some degree, as blocking testosterone can lead to decreased metabolism, and women as a group tend to have higher body fat percentages than men, and so those are two kind of risk factors to see an increased risk for diabetes. Uh, and then the transgender populations have a high prevalence of disordered eating, which in itself is linked to diabetes and impacts uh, metabolic function. Um, both transmasculine and transfeminine populations also seem to have higher amounts of heart disease based on surveys. There is more smoking in these populations, uh, which is an independent risk factor for, for heart disease. Transfeminine populations have been observed to have higher amounts of type 2 diabetes over time, and this may be related to the blocking of testosterone and lower metabolism causing weight gain. And higher BMIs in trans men at the start of therapy is another risk factor which is correlated with the development of type 2 diabetes. Well, that's an extremely complicated and difficult situation to try to make sense of. The American Heart Association recently released new guidelines that try to make sense of this. What are some of the suggestions that they make to help us move this understanding forward? There are a few things that we can do to, to help out with this. One is that we can partner with patients on the modifiable risk factors that they have, such as tobacco use, um, their exercise level, and kind of the foods that they're eating, trying to help them access healthy foods. We should have universal documentation of gender and sexuality in all medical records. We should be working with our trans and gender diverse communities 
to understand and develop measures that encompass the social determinants of health. We should train healthcare providers in inclusive interview techniques across all disciplines to help in this. And we should be aware that the social determinants of health and minority stress contribute to cardiometabolic risk in the transgender and gender diverse communities and take means to address this. Thanks, Dr. Hardy. Talking about the social determinants of health, Jude, you work with people trying to gain employment, and we know that employment at a living wage is an incredibly important social determinant of health. Tell me about what are the social determinants of health and how do they affect trans and gender diverse populations? Absolutely. So basically the social determinants of health are things like healthcare access, your ability to access providers, your access to educational opportunities, your access to economic opportunities such as, um, you know, jobs or if you're unable to work, you know, the ability to have a disability, that kind of thing. Also, you know, how you're treated in society and how you're treated in a community um, and just how you interact with the neighborhood around you. And so, you know, most people that are in a situation, especially trans folks, are dealing with a lot of different inequalities to social determinants of health. Many trans people, when they come out as transgender, are oftentimes unwelcome in their families, unwelcome um, within their communities or schools. Uh, we see that now with current political activity that really feels like it's working against the trans population, especially in schools, and especially in their own medical treatment and access to care. When we look at different legislation that's being circulated around, that really feels like it's almost like an attack on the community. Uh, and so quite a few of us are struggling right now to deal with all of the ways that it feels like we are being attacked or we feel that we are being discriminated against or we feel are blocking our access to healthcare and to gender affirming healthcare especially. Um, we also see a lot of trans women especially going into sex work, which as we know is a highly dangerous and oftentimes deadly, quite frankly, enterprise to enter into, you know, because they feel like they don't have any other alternatives. And so oftentimes the social determinants of health are really things that cisgender people might not need to worry about nearly as much as trans folks. You know, the social determinants of health are all the ways that impair people's ability to manage their own health that have absolutely nothing to do with their own interest in managing their own health, right? Like social support and partner violence and legal support and housing and incarceration, all of those things. I really appreciate the American Heart Association's thoughtfulness in talking about how there are these differences in cell risk versus difference in population risk. And so much of that is down to the social determinants of health. Yes, there are so many parts of the social determinants of health that really are inaccessible to trans people. And so they are struggling at a higher rate with chronic conditions, as well as struggling to find legal and medical avenues to really complete and work through the transition process. Mr. Teleshek, thank you so much for talking about your personal experience with gender-affirming hormonal therapy since we're talking specifically about diabetes and cardiometabolic health, can you tell me specifically how that worked for you? I can absolutely do that, Dr. Min. So prior to starting my hormonal therapy, uh, my A1C for my diabetes was 
solidly within the 15 to 14 range, which is, as we know, an incredibly unhealthy number to be at. And in the year and a half since I started on my hormonal therapy, um, my A1C is down to 7.4%. So I think that's just a really dramatic but also important number to focus on because clearly this has had a major impact on how I approach both my life and my health. That's incredible. Can you tell me what resources did you access to help you make all those changes? Because that's a massive change. Yeah. So one of the things I really started to focus on in terms of my own health was the kind of food that I was taking in. Uh, That has been probably the biggest struggle of my life is food and my approach to food and my approach to things like vegetables, which are not my favorite thing to eat. But also in terms of, you know, what am I drinking? What is my intake of water every day? And then in addition to that, I also started doing an exercise program uh, with a gym that actually focuses on working with the trans population. It's been an amazing experience for me while I start this treatment for my gender transition because hormones affect you and testosterone has made me more energetic. It's made me want to get more active, become more active. And so as a result, you know, I feel that the gym has become a place where I appreciate going as opposed to where I dread to go as I did in the past. Just to say again, it really was the impact of gender affirming hormones that helped you make those changes because, you know, it's not like that was new information to you, right? That like there was something, I guess what I, you know, want to really emphasize is to say, you know, it's not just that you hadn't heard that stuff before, right? I mean, you'd been a diabetic for a long time. So I was just going to say, yeah, I've been probably diabetic for 15 years now, at least. And I had not done any of the suggested things for it. I was terrible about taking my medication. I was terrible about changing my eating habits, changing my exercise routine. And basically starting on testosterone has made all of the difference. It really has to feel affirmed in myself, to look in the mirror and see myself as I've always seen myself in my head, or at least the beginning stages of it, has also made me want to you know, find a way to be healthier so that I live longer, so that I can have a bigger impact on my family, friends, and my future um, and the community within which I work. So it's really and truly been something that has motivated me in ways that I can't even describe. Do you think that if there are some healthcare providers that would say, well, people should have to get all of these things under control before they start gender affirming hormones, do you think that would have worked? Like had I said to you, you know, your A1C needs to be blah before we do this? No, that honestly, no. I I have been through at least three how to eat as a diabetic courses. I've been to nutritionists. I've had nurse consults. It's not like I didn't know the information, but if I had come to you and said, I feel I need to start hormone therapy in order to, you know, really work through other health issues. And you had said, I'm sorry, we don't do that for people who are who weigh this much or who have an A1C that's this high. It would have been incredibly discouraging to hear that. It would have been incredibly sad to hear that. And frankly, it would have felt like a lot of the other physicians that I've seen about my diabetes 
it would have been it would have felt it would have felt like one more challenge that the trans community has to face you know in order to live as ourselves to have to get the approval of a doctor in terms of our baseline health um, being a determinant to whether or not we start on hormone therapy would have really been felt like another weight another blockade to wanting to be ourselves and and just would have really honestly turned me off to going to see a physician at all in regards to this so dr hardy you know, I'm a primary care clinician doing this work. Tell me about what's your reflection about these things from an endocrinology perspective? Yeah, I, that is an interesting question. Um, so as an endocrinologist, my focus is a little different from a, a primary care provider. But in a sense, um, as an endocrinologist, um, essentially every part of the body is affected by hormones. So I am thinking about kind of everything, um, whether I'm seeing someone for gender-affirming care or whether I'm seeing someone else for, for another issue from an endocrine perspective. And so the, 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 way, that, the way that I see it um, is kind of how we've been talking all morning, talking with the discussion, is that we're looking at not just um, the, the care that we're providing, but we're looking to try and help address any of these um, disparities that someone is having um, to try and see if we can take care of the patient as a whole uh, and try and help them kind of not just from a hormone perspective, but from a perspective for their day-to-day life to have, have them lead a enriching life and have them achieve the goals that they're achieving or wanting to achieve. Thank you so much. Um, it's great for me as a primary care clinician to know that there are so many subspecialists who are interested in partnering with us and partnering with our patients to try and expand their health in a broad and truly whole person way. So Dr. Mintz, when we're dealing with social determinants of health, I do have a quick question. Given the challenges, what are some tips for primary care providers working with patients to support management of insulin resistance and diabetes in patients taking gender-affirming hormonal therapy? Thanks, Dr. Hardy. Here are some suggestions that work for me in clinic. One is I tend to screen patients with type 2 diabetes risk at initiation of treatment. This is one of the things recommended by the University of California, San Francisco's uh, gender-affirming care team. And what I mean by screen is ask questions, right? Is talking about history of PCO, talk about history of prediabetes, talk about family history, all of that kind of stuff. I would also screen people that have sort of unprompted concerns about blood sugar or weight in our discussion. Uh, because of the risk of and the huge prevalence of disordered eating in trans and gender diverse communities, I very explicitly don't talk with people about weight before I do the other thing, which I would recommend to primary care providers, which is to screen every patient that comes to your office about disordered eating and also access to food. Food insecurity and disordered eating can cause eating behavior that is not in line with cardiometabolic health, and we know that disordered eating can directly affect metabolism. So talking about disordered eating as an initial primary care intervention in not only trans and gender diverse patients, but especially in trans and gender diverse patients. Otherwise, I screen people, again, history of cardiometabolic disease in the family and people who have a history of prediabetes or concerns about their blood sugar. 
And then generally I screen patients per the ADA guidelines, sorry, the American Diabetes Association. So we screen people over 35 for type 2 diabetes then every three years after that. This is part of the more recent guidelines. The previous recommendations are particular to clinical care with trans and gender diverse communities. So once again, screening people for history of disordered eating, lots of people have a hard time asking this question because it's an uncomfortable topic to talk about. Usually I say something like, do you have any history of not having enough access to food, not being able to access food, caregivers restricting your food intake, or any problems with food restriction or binging and purging? And then asking people, how does that affect their health today? Because as we know, for some people, it's long-term history they don't even think about. And for other people, it's very front of mind. Again, in the risk and benefit conversation, right, which is required for those of us who are supporting adults that are getting access to gender-affirming therapy, I have specific conversations with both people on masculinizing treatment and feminizing treatment about what's going to be the impact of these things on your cardiometabolic health. So for testosterone, I make the assumption that the patient is fairly well-informed because typically my patients are very well-informed by the time they get to my office. And so I ask people, well, what do you know about what testosterone is going to do to hunger and energy? Sometimes I say, you know, in our research, trans folks as a group are more likely to have heart attacks and strokes and high blood pressure than cis women. So that's why we do office visits every three months as we're getting started and then have regular checkups after that. And, you know, what can we do right now to partner with you to improve your cardiometabolic health? Often uh, my shtick is I ask you to do the same things we tell everyone to do, which is don't smoke tobacco, eat vegetables, heart healthy foods, move around and exercise in ways that are sustainable. And typically the patients already have ideas about all of these things. And so basically you are helping them start a conversation in a formal way that was previously informal. I think Jude makes mention of this really effectively, right? That diabetes was just not on his mind, but that once his health became on his mind, his diabetes could become that from there. And then, so for feminizing therapy, right, similarly, I assume the patient has some information. What do you know about estrogen and how blocking testosterone is going to do to your energy levels and how much calories you need in a day? People are usually very well aware that these things are going to change. And if they're not, then it's a good opportunity for education, right? So we block testosterone. We know that that means that the number of calories you burn is going to be less. So it means about attending to your own body and attending to how your body changes. And then the main thing is to address and intervene regarding the impact of the social determinants of health, right? Jude made mention of a whole bunch of different concerns specific to trans and gender diverse communities, but are really things to address with every single person, right? Which is, one is to know which resources are available in your institution and in your community, specifically ones which are gender affirming, and that's regardless of where you live. And so that gives you the opportunity to, frankly, warn patients when they might go somewhere where their gender will not be affirmed uh, so they can make that choice. And then at Metro Health, we do screening about the social determinants of health prior to patient visits, and then ensuring that some sort of staff time is dedicated to follow up with those concerns, to connect people with social workers, case managers, healthy food resources, whatever those are. And then when patients bring up social determinants of health concerns, right, someone tells you about housing access, all of those things, as a primary care provider to probe that situation and ask what resources the patient already has access to and then think about connecting them into other resources in your community, you know, ideally co-located in your clinics, but, you know, whatever resources you have to connect people to them. And then 
you know, for me as a clinician, it's important for me that if a need is consistently unmet in my community, that part of my work in terms of my internal institutions is to say, hey, this is a need that patients have that we need to figure out how to address. And I think that for clinicians, your advocacy with and about trans and gender diverse people is one of the most incredible powers that we have both to impact the social environment of trans and gender diverse people, but also to increase the confidence of trans and gender diverse communities of health systems and of our ability as clinicians to truly provide good care. Dr. Hardy and Mr. Telshek, uh, thank you so much for talking with me today. I'd encourage everyone that provides care to trans and gender diverse people at whatever point in treatment to know that gender affirmation is a critical component for managing chronic health concerns like diabetes and that all of us have an opportunity to work with patients on goals as they identify them. Well, thank you so much again, Dr. Mintz, for having me here. And I just want to say, as somebody who has worked with you in the past, I do appreciate so much your approach, not only to affirming healthcare, but in recognizing the actual goals of your patients in regards to their healthcare. Thank you, Jude. That's so kind. Yes, uh, thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed our discussion this morning. Thank you so much, Dr. Hardy. And thank you to all of you, our cardio listeners, for tuning in to Cardio Radio. This concludes today's podcast. Be sure to visit cardio.org to learn more about the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative.